0: We finally gave some good advice. Yeah.
1: That was really good. Somebody should write that down. Yeah. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry along the way. Uh, we hope to have uh, share a lot of great information and have a little bit of fun along the way. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Chris Boyer. You can find him online at Chris Boyer on Twitter, ChristopherBoyer.com, and all the other social
0: interweb sites like LinkedIn, Snapchat, and all those kind of good things. Chris, how's it going? Pretty good, Reed. Nice to be here today. And I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Reed Smith. Reed Smith is also a digital strategist uh, that works with hospitals and health systems. You can find him online at uh, Reed Smith through all the various social accounts that are out there. And his website is socialhealthinstitute.com. There it is. Um,
1: real quick, before we get too far into this uh, and actually um introduce the topic for the day. Of course, I guess if you've downloaded the podcast, you probably know the topic at this point, so it's not like I'm <laughs> holding anything back, but if we could ask for a favor, two things. First, if you make your way over to iTunes, that would be uh, fabulous, and when you do, if you could subscribe to the podcast because we want you to obviously get this wonderful information as soon as it's available. But while you're there subscribing, if you could rate and review us, so rate, give us a little star rating and write an actual review. That sure does mean a lot. And most importantly, uh, it helps other folks, uh, that are navigating around, uh, find the
0: podcast that may not know about it. So subscribe, rate and review on iTunes. Yeah. And the other thing that we can ask you to do is, um, perhaps if you find some value from this is uh, recommend it to a friend. This is the good old fashioned word of mouth. We, you know, we, we hope that this is providing some value, sharing some good information and we'd love to have this podcast in, in many more people's ears just so people can hear more about it and uh, provide us insight. So thanks for doing both of those things. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So today, again, if you download
1: the podcast you already know what the topic is, but why don't you, uh, why don't you kick us
0: off? <laughs> well, today we're going to jump into personas. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into personas, what personas are, and good ways that organizations can use personas. Because in digital marketing and digital communications, we uh, are tending to use personas very, very frequently. We may not call them
1: personas, but we, we are you know at least seeing or asking the question more often around... Who is this for? Who are we creating this activity to try to reach? So that could be content creation. It could be uh, more of a campaign marketing strategy of some sort, service line marketing, whatever it may be. But ultimately, who is it that we're trying to have this message resonate with?
0: So the, the whole concept of personas, as we modernly know, it might be good to just do a little quick little history lesson. I actually did some research on it. I kind of found it to be kind of fascinating. Um, it was the, before 1975, uh, no one was really doing this. I think that what, um, what happened is there's this guy named Alan Cooper who was a software developer. And way back in 75 when he was creating some of the software products that were out there, he... Started to realize they weren't really easy to use. They were a little bit difficult. And if you can imagine back then, you know, uh, word processing in 1975 done via computer, it took an hour to process the the, <laughs> the document. You know, it was like really old and slow. So what he started to do is really take some time to understand how he can make this better. He he grew from being a developer to becoming what he was calling himself as an interaction designer. And he started to consult with people about how how they can actually create software products to be a little bit more focused on the user themselves. Uh, it's in 1995 he really started to understand that in order to build something good, he had to get a really in-depth understanding of the users and 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 take the segmentation of users to a, a whole nother level. He cr- he started calling it personas at that point in time. And he was considered the pers- first person to write a book on this back in 98 called The Inmates Are Running the Asylum. I found his, a blog post that he wrote many years ago uh, where he was kind of talking about the history of this. But the whole point of what he was trying to get at is that personas were really, this whole concept of personas could be what he says. He wants to call them counterintuitive, but he says, quote, it would be more accurate to say that they're more counter logical. And he suspects that this is why they're, they originated in practice, rather rather than through some kind of academic concept. We knew about segmentation before then, but that wasn't really there until this whole concept of personas is. He says, if responding to the directive design for the user, you follow logic, you tend to canvas the user community, collect their requests for functions, and then provide them a product containing all of these functions. And this is what he calls the sum of all desired features. This is when he started to create the whole modern concept of what we now call personas. Uh, he just ended that blog post, which we'll link to, by saying personas can be grasped in a minute, but it takes years to really become good at creating them.
1: You know, as we as we start thinking about personas, I, you know, you can get obviously very in the weeds with this, but, um, you know, really take a minute and, and think about you know, where would this fit? Why would I use these within my organization and kind of how's it going to better help what I'm doing? So, as you're starting to, um, you know, create a marketing campaign or as you're going to meetings, um, you will have, you know, who was it that we were trying to reach? You know, you, you kick off these meetings with all these people and then down the road, people have forgotten, whether it's due to scope creep or whatever it is, of what the original objective was. And so, if you have this outline, it really kind of helps people stay on track. So. First, look at your growth strategies, you know, determine what it is that you're actually trying to accomplish. Where does this fit within the organization? Um, So, you know, maybe, maybe it is a good idea, but it's not part of the growth plan. So maybe it's just not a good idea right now. Um, Who is it that you're trying to reach? Now, we like to say things like, well, mom, you know, mom's the healthcare decision maker. Well, that's true. But who is mom? What does mom look like? Um, If... You know, if this campaign, if this objective, if this strategy goes according to plan, tactic, whatever it is, if it was successful, what did that mean? Did they register for something? Did they call a phone number? Um, did they just simply click through? Um, did they show up? Did they have surgery? Did they, is there a message, You know, what does success look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ultimately, one, one step past that is you know, how will I show or demonstrate or showcase that? So, you know, if this is successful, this happened. Okay. Well, whatever that is, whatever that action is, uh, you better make sure you have a way to measure that or show the fact that that happened. Ultimately, you know, you're not ever
0: going to be able to show success if you can't do that. Putting that framework together is really important, and uh, a lot of people want to jump right to creating the personas. and I think it's important that you want to create a persona, but um, the 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 other thing that I want to uh, say before we get into the kind of the elements of a good persona is that a lot of times now people are using these personas for more than just digital right they're using it across many different applications and in fact i work with organizations now that are using personas to kind of help them improve their patient experience goals as well Mm -hmm. Um, so all of these questions that you have right um, that kind of help set yourself up for starting on this path are really critical and can be applied to more than just marketing and communications absolutely absolutely so let's talk a little bit about you know how, how do
1: you build a persona. And, and there's lots of ways you, you, know, you can Google and find all kinds of options out there on how to do this. Um, this is just a list that uh, I kind of threw together just to help you think through all the elements of, uh, you know, th- and that doesn't mean that you have to answer every one of these questions, but you want to answer as many of these as you can uh, to help best round out, um, you know, the persona. Again, so as you get down the track, uh, you've got something to refer back to. So, first being location. Um, you know, geographic is, is usually one that we're already doing, whether we call them as part of personas or not. is maybe more just targeting. But where do people live? You know, where does this person that I'm trying to reach live? And part of that is maybe even where do they not live?
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: excluding certain regions, locations, parts of towns, zip codes, whatever it is, uh, because you may have a particular thing that's happening or you're trying to
0: drive adoption of it would not make sense outside of one, you know, maybe tight geographic area. Yeah. Like when I was in New York, right. We knew that people that lived on Staten Island wouldn't cross, you know, the East river, to, to go seek out care they wanted to seek out care at Staten Island. Right. Those are important things you know there could be really interesting geographical differentiators mm-hmm. that really can uh, help you segment your personas
1: And that may be that doesn't mean that it's the same uh, across the entire organization It may vary by service line um, it may vary based on what the service is inside of the service line or the physician or where clinics exist or don't exist etc. Uh, the next would be more of kind of the demographic information, so age and gender. So again, if you're marketing um, uh, digital mammography, for example, you know, one persona needs to take into account the fact that you know an, uh, a female would be 40 plus and that she can have a digital mammogram and she needs to have that annually. Well, you may have a different persona for those that have a family history of breast cancer be targeting that to 30 to 39 year olds and your message would change in that sense. So again, age, and in this case, gender, sometimes gender doesn't matter. Sometimes it does. Um, interest, you know, what are they interested in? Um, so, you know, do they like to travel, like home improvement shows, you know, whatever it may be. Um, you know, what does this typical person, you know, maybe, th- maybe this is somebody that has kids and we'll get into that a little bit. So they're really interested in, um, you know, those types of, uh, stages of life, you know, type activities, so water parks or you know things mm-hmm. like
0: that. Well, Reed, and I think that's important, right? A lot of people say, "Well, why are all these additional interests?" That important to building your persona it kind of helps you contextualize it, it gives an insight into not only what they do in their recreational spaces which might give you uh ideas or opportunities to try to get your get your messaging get your communication inserted into it maybe it allows you to find partnerships like if you say water parks like for example might be a good opportunity for a partnership yep. um, these outside interests as we've talked about often right they influence how people react to your messaging now. So yep. there's a having those interests are, are really critical.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, education level uh, also kind of coupled with job titles. So again, some of this may stratify along the lines of age, for example, but not always. And so it's important to look at the education levels. It important that they've been to college, yes or no, uh, or have an advanced degree, you know, et cetera. Uh, job title, you know, again, if you're targeting certain people, you know, maybe you have a workplace wellness solution or an employer strategy. So you're looking for people in the human resources field and that's who you're targeting with the
0: campaign. Again, sometimes those don't matter depending on what the campaign is. Yeah, but it relates to the very next one, right? Which is the income level. Yep. Right. So I think that that, you know, a lot of times that, and, and I'll take that one really quick, income level is, is very important to help you understand the buyer persona. Mm-hmm. All of those three together could also, education, job, and income level, can also inform, if if you don't have access to it, the potential of the type of insurance coverage that they may have. Right? Right. Which is also becoming very important and an important part of as you're developing the personas. Yep. Um, a, You know, a lot of times, though, the the income level is is kind of a a clue to also their affluence and their socioeconomic levels in the marketplace.
1: Absolutely. And especially if you're looking at something that's more consumer-driven or elective in nature, Mm -hmm. those are going to play into that uh, as well. Um, Relationship status. So, you know, again, sometimes not a big deal. Sometimes it is, depending on what you're focusing on. Uh, It may give you the ability to write some maybe testing language or something like that, where really you're talking to uh, the spouse versus the patient in a lot of cases. Uh, Language – this is a big one. Um, You know, obviously, depending on the market, you may have – it may not be the dominant language, but it may be something that is um, a secondary language or one that is is very common in that market. Uh, You know, Spanish is an easy one if you look at, like, the border towns in Texas, southern uh, California, Arizona, etc. And one of the things that we've realized is while you know a lot of those folks are bilingual, they prefer to communicate or engage in their native language. So it's important to think: Well, do we need um, do we need this as Spanish language, uh, etc. Favorite websites. So what types of websites do they frequent? You know, do they like DIY stuff? Do they like um, news? uh, type organizations where they're getting, you know, weather and, you know, updates, uh, around town or they interested in things to do, you know, et cetera. Again, may go back to some partnerships, you know, so if you look at things like websites, they like to visit, you know, and again, also look at those interests, you know, some of those are a little bit the same. It's almost like their interest online. Um, and you've got a huge joint replacement or a huge back pain spine clinic. Well, it may make sense to sponsor a partnership with the local triathlon or the marathon or, you know, one of those types of things. Um, and it w- would also help provide some content for your blog, potentially your social
0: properties. And now we can extend that, right, to say favorite social media accounts and right. other favorite online destination spots, right? It's not just, right. don't think of it as traditional websites, um, and how they frequent your website. that right. If you could get that sense of that, that becomes very, or your websites, right, that becomes very important to them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, depending on how you've answered some of these other questions, it may make sense that you know what, that particular demographic is really into mobile gaming or that, you know, so they visit those types of websites or, um, you know, you may see that uh, because of some of the way you've answered some of these other things, age, gender, interest levels, education level, um, you know, that you're going to have a better chance connecting on something like Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter that skews younger, um, you know, et cetera. So again, uh, all good things to answer. The last two, buying motivations and buying concerns um, you know, it's it's really how these people participate and what is what what kind of pushes them over the finish line, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do they need certain boxes checked before they are then going to pick up the phone and call somebody or fill out a form? And so, how you know, how do these people? Um, you get their information, you know, goes back to
0: what type of websites they like, what social channels they participate on. These last two, the buying motivation, the buying concern speaks to something a little bit bigger, which is goes way back to our very first episode, which is customer journey mapping, right? What you're trying to understand is sort of the journey that they're going on and where they're at in that path. Now, we're not going to go into it today, into this progressive persona building. There's this whole concept of developing a persona that goes through the customer journey. But really what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, are we targeting this persona? Is it targeting someone that's right at this particular point in the purchasing decision? And what is it going to take to help them make those, you know, make that decision, choose your doctor, choose you for, for care? So why don't we talk about making these personas a little bit more evidence-based? Because I think a lot of times um, I've seen personas being built that are not really tied to actual data, and yet more and more organizations now have access to a lot of places where they can actually get information about about uh, their audiences and their potential and even existing audiences. I, I like to call it evidence-based personas, right? Personas based on some accurate information that might be out there. Right. And
1: historically our only option was, and so we, we've built personas for quite some time. So we've done like focus yeah. groups, right. And really we just talked about it as focus group findings. We didn't talk about it as, you know, we talked to moms in our local market that have kids under the age of 10 or school age kids or, you know, whatever. And this is what they told us. And it was more of just a report. We didn't then fashion that in the sense of, um, you know, a persona. Although that's really what we were doing. We were collecting that information. So, what well, what are some of those more? I guess what are you seeing as ways that
0: we can then pull that information down? Well, I, th- I think one of the biggest tools that's been used, uh, uh, you know, at least you know in the last decade I've been in the space is CRM. CRM tools, uh, healthcare focused CRM tools, have really great abilities to help you with your segmentation, and not only that. They bring in this concept of these propensity models or these, uh, you know, uh, models that are built on comorbidities based on various different track, tracks to actually say these are some factors that will uh, help you to segment your population better. So part of that could be based on you know where they're at, what they've, what kind of um, procedures they've had before. A person that was seen for orthopedic care maybe a great target persona for rehabilitation care, mm-hmm. or even more so they start. To overlay other things, so they could say, "This is an audience that's more loyal to your uh, to your your health system." These are ones that are maybe the invincibles, right? And a lot of times, you think age is invincible, but there could be some that are in you know that that never really seek out care. Maybe they're sporadic care. CRMs are one of the big players that are out there that I see.
1: You know, the interoperability, I guess, of your CRM with patient data is important if that's really going to be. Uh, otherwise, you're just using kind of marketing touch points, right? Mm-hmm. You can't
0: follow that into the into the patient journey, so yeah, that's a great one. Well, CRM also pulls in a lot of marketing information, right? Like from Mm -hmm. Experian and other data sources. What's What's starting to happen now, too, is there's some new tools that are coming in place, right? We've seen marketing automation is also a great overlay of sort of sort of the interests and and desires and even the motivation of some of your audiences. Now, keep in mind, marketing automation is sort of a, a complementary tool to CRM and. But it really all will help you to um, identify ways to segment or subsegment existing people that are already in your your overall communication, you know, uh, list, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So social media analytics. I mean, again, you know, we're pulling in data, you know, from marketing activities, maybe through CRM. So this may be a little bit of an overlap. Uh, but again, how do people engage with you? What do they engage about? What what types of Uh, conversations, are they having, you know, hashtags or other types of communities they're being involved in, Um, you know, and how how do they engage with each other, Um, you know, much the same way, you know, we pull in web analytics, Um, looking at the social analytics, looking at the web analytics of what pages are they visiting, how often, how much time are they spending on the site, Um, you know, that type of thing, are they coming back, you know, are they all new, are they returning users, you know, etc. The more sophisticated you get, then you start measuring, you know, why people came to your website and geographically, where were they when they came to your website and what did they look for? What keywords brought them there? Uh, again, mm-hmm. all feeding back ultimately into the CRM, hopefully. So you can start building out a persona inside the mm-hmm. CRM of
0: yeah, and you see social and web also pulling in now interest data, right? Um, mm-hmm. Google and Facebook, they have all that information. Again, adding more information to your your pro, to your to persona profile. The others that I see a lot of organizations do is they're spending time with their strategic planning departments because they have access to tools that allow for this kind of segmentation too. Remember, strategic planning uses this to plan where they're going to build facilities, where they're going to expand the, the health system. So they're using tools like SG2 or even Mosaic segmentation Mm -hmm. these are tools that are designed to go out um, without getting data of you know the actual users um, uh, of the health system but like where are the potential markets where areas where they can where they can go and there's these very complicated sophisticated tools out there sg2 mosaic others that we've seen organizations use to actually get to get information about their audiences and then lastly you know there's uh, there's a quite a bit of other segmentation data that's kind of spotty and all over the place yeah. Some, sometimes cities and states pull together segmentation data um, I've seen Wikipedia sites that actually have information about certain regions sure. that would be very important I've seen government sponsored websites where they're having information about you know the type of coverage uh, 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 healthcare coverage of certain areas and I see organizations are kind of dabbling in all this other segmentation data that's out there. But what are some tips, Reed, that you would give to organizations that are going down this persona work? Yeah, so I would make sure they're tied to actual campaigns or actionable efforts. Don't create too many personas. Remember, personas don't have to represent every individual person that's out there. Don't go out there and create a bunch of personas without knowing exactly what you plan to do with them. Um, When you're creating personas, you know, don't get hung up on some of that irrelevant information that's out there. Personas are there for an action or for a purpose. Make sure you don't lose sight of that. You don't have to know that they have French toast for breakfast, right? right. I don't think that's important.
1: And I think finally, I, I, one more that I would mention is uh, be sure you can defend or back up where you got the information from that makes up the persona.
0: And I have one final one well, as well, which is don't forget that you have personas. Mm-hmm. Often come back to them Go back to them, you know. You, you, we do a lot of great work at the beginning of the work we do. When you're calibrating your efforts, go back to your personas. Make sure that you know you're you're not losing them, so to speak, in the shuffle. What, 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 what is news? Okay, uh, now in the what news section, we're going to dive into an article that we found. Uh, and this article that we found was actually on socialdriver.com, which happens to be a, a good aggregate uh, blog, and it seems to be a UX/UI company. But on their blog, they created they created an article back in October of last year, which I think is pretty good for us to have a little deeper conversation. Um, and it's called "The Five Best Practices for Developing UX Personas." Really, this this gets into the the concept of taking the personas now. To something that's even a little bit more robust than just, you know, our checklist that we talked about before in the first section, really helping us to uh, identify how we can use these personas in a way to, to really amplify the work that we're doing. So they gave five great tips, Reed. So why don't we just kind of dive in and talk about each one and break it apart?
1: Yeah, so the first one is uh, research and
0: revise. I think this is an interesting. When we
1: talked about all those pieces in the uh, segment before... And I think this is just a great reminder that uh, that doesn't mean that that's where that stops. You're going to develop a persona. That doesn't mean that you're like, okay, now I'm done with the moms that are 35 to 45 year old persona. I'm going to set that one over here and never look at it again. Be sure, you know, they're talking here about, you know, talking to your user experience team, uh, the product owner, etc. The way I'm looking at that is, you know, go, t- go talk to those service line directors. Uh, go talk to the people you know in those clinical roles, or the people, the nurse navigators, or whoever they are, depending on what you're talking about, and say, is this still who's partaking in this service? Is this still who's coming here? So
0: as as these campaigns roll on, and maybe you renew the campaign, or you decide to move it to a different market. Now, number two on this list is make it memorable. And uh, in the article, it talks a lot about making you're, you're making sure that you're focusing on creating the right. The, the the personal aspect of the persona, right? The the photograph, the name Kind of the description using narrative tone etc i actually know one organization that created a cardboard cutout of their persona and what they did is whenever they were planning a marketing campaign they would put that persona cardboard cutout in the seat at the table with them and the reason why <laughs> it was to help them remember right that they're creating this campaign around what this persona type is and that they made sure that that persona was sitting there at the table Number three, understand persona end
1: goals. So, understanding what that person, that cardboard cutout sitting in that chair, what you know, what do they want? What are their needs? How are they going to then realize uh, that this? But a lot of these personas overlap. It's not like you have here's the persona for this campaign. Well, that persona probably also works for other campaigns and initiatives and and things like that. So. Make sure you're setting those user
0: experience goals uh, from a persona's point of view. That's really good. And that relates really closely to number four, which is create user scenarios. So the persona is just the beginning of this really, uh, it, what in order to use the personas the right way, you want to start to create the user flows. How is this persona going to interact with your content? What does it look like as they go through a campaign, or maybe they're navigating your your website? Really, these user scenarios tell the story of how the product's going to be used, or how you're, how they're going to flow through your content. Scenarios are really important part of creating that overall experience, and it also allows you to then step back and say, how can we optimize this scenario, make it easier make it useful for people maybe cut down a couple of the steps maybe get them right to that where they need to go we do this a lot with website design now I'm starting to see this uh, a lot with organizations when we're working on campaign design
1: number five uh, and the last one here which is share it seems logical but we don't do it so make sure everybody you know not everybody in the hospital needs to know what the persona is but everybody involved or that would have questions or input on the campaign, make sure everybody understands this is what we're doing. You know, this is what we're targeting. And so we do a pretty good job of like, here's the campaigns we're going to run. We don't talk mm-hmm. a lot about, and there for these people. So just make sure you're finishing that dialogue uh, with those folks that are involved or would be interested in, in, you know,
0: whether they're just getting reports or they're involved in the planning. I think the, art, uh, the author of the article sums it up pretty well uh, when she says that UX personas can give you real insight into your audience that will actually lead to a much better product or service. But just remember that personas change over time. So when you create them, learn from them, share them, and don't forget to revisit them and make, them ch- make changes as needed. Touch point, touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready, fight!
1: Here we are, touch point, touch counterpoint segment of the podcast. We take polar opposite views, I mean as far in the extreme as we possibly can, uh, whether we believe it or not, and then we argue for a couple of minutes uh, those opposing point of views. And uh, here we are. Of course, we did this. Mm-hmm. We did this live at the forums uh, for healthcare strategists um, here recently with a number of folks, but we're back mm-hmm. to just us two.
0: Yeah, it was a little bit interesting to have multiple people at the argument because it was kind of hard uh, and, and, and an individual person went, argued both sides Matt was arguing both sides so that was right. kind of fun at the conference afterwards someone came up to me and they actually called this segment they said it was their favorite part of our podcast but they, they also called it by a different name so I just wanted okay. to say that the name controversy continues the name, the name they called it was Touchpoint Counterpoint so they dropped the second mm. touch entirely. Now we're at touch point, touch, counterpoint, touch point, counter
1: touch point, and touch point, counterpoint. <laughs> so maybe just scrap them all and just call it something else entirely different.
0: <laughs> call it
1: face off. Yeah, or something. the segment where we argue. You know, that or something. Kind of <laughs> well, all right, so today, obviously, we're talking about personas, and we'll leave the naming uh, for another day, but uh, the argument is. Are personas real?
0: So true or false, are they real or are they just made up? Maybe even more so, we can argue if not only are they real or just made up, but are they useful because they're real or not real? I'm going to say personas are just things that we make up because we're marketers and we're trying to add storytelling to our stories. And quite honestly, we don't need to create personas because we have a really great understanding of how users are going to use our are, are going to go through our content anyway. We know more than they do. We shouldn't be creating these. They aren't real. If a
1: persona was made in the woods, would it be? All right. No, seriously. I, of course, of course they're real. Just because some people may make them up does not mean that the idea of personas or personas are not real. Right. So, sure, some people may make them up. That just means they're doing it wrong. So, that's a whole different piece. Personas very much are real because, I mean, even historically, that we've talked about, we've had uh, focus groups and we've got all this market data coming in. And we very much can whittle down to, you know, who it is that we're trying to reach and answer all those questions that we've talked about.
0: But, Reed, this is all based on stuff that's kind of, uh, uh, I I would say that it's statistically projected against the data. We don't really know if an individual, like a a segment of women between the ages of 35 and 45 are really targets for a particular type of medical treatment. We know that that's the age typically they fall in. How do we know that that's the right target? I think what we're doing is we're taking things that occur and we're making false projections onto our data to indicate that, say, this is our target now, when really we have to spend time understanding who we're actually treating we don't have to spend all this time creating all this other stuff we just we already know who our audiences are we may know but we don't know how to find them so we go talk
1: to clinical folks and we can get like the you know who is a good bariatric candidate or joint replacement or sleep apnea or whatever it is and we can build what that person looks like but we have to take into account all this other data that we have and then we have real access to to understand, okay, well then how do we put that message in front
0: of those people in a logical way? And so all that put together is a real persona. And maybe I'll get the argument that an age stratification is important, insurance... And, and maybe even the income that they have but how do we even know what their interests are I don't think we understand that there's no way we could extrapolate from the fact that they're you know that they're women in this particular region that you know like to subscribe to women's Day magazine or whatever that that actually means it's going to influence their behavior Well sure but they're personas they're not individual you know schematics of someone's
1: life so really what you're doing is you're making this you know, you know, creation that targets a large group of people. It's not going to resonate 100% with every single person. It's not supposed to.
0: Well, okay, look, maybe maybe I will take it this way. I'll say, look, there's only really 3% as we need to create. People ages fifty five or I say sixty five and older, and those people are not computer literates, and they're going to count on their children anyway to take care of it. So really, honestly, we don't have to do anything with our digital stuff. Then we have all the people in between. Those are our target people, the the sandwich generation, and we we'll target them. And then there's the millennials who are to blame for everything else in the that's wrong in this world. That sounds about right. No, seriously, <laughs> I mean making.
1: We can, we can get more granular than that in a very smart way. Yes. I mean, so I, there, I think there is an argument to be made for having too many personas or we can create more, but really what's the upside of having them? Again, going back to the idea of I'm trying to do this, whatever this is, defining success like we've talked about, and then talking about, well, who are those people that would want this? And so we do. We need to get more granular with that.
0: And, you
1: know, it's even more cost effective to target less people.
0: I, I'm i having trouble taking an anti-persona stance <laughs> past this read. I actually see a lot of value in it. I think a lot of people do see value in this. Um, it, it's so easy for us to want to, you know, uh, kind of paint broad brush strokes against, you know, our general population. But um, it, it, it's not just these basic information. There's a lot to this. I have to admit, I am very pro persona.
1: Well, there you go. It's probably again, though. However, somewhere probably in the middle, maybe leaning a little more towards my side of the of the argument. <laughs> uh, but you can get a little carried away uh, with some of this stuff and include data like we've talked about. That probably while fine that it's on there doesn't get you anything new. So again, right. you know, go through. Define success, that's the best way, back into what success looks like, and uh, you'll be doing pretty good.
0: All right, welcome back to our Ask the Expert section of our podcast, and today I am pleased to be talking to someone that I consider an expert in content strategy, but also someone I consider a really close friend, because we've known each other for a very, very long time. And that is Ahava Liebteg. tag. Ahava welcome to our to our podcast today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm super excited to be here. should be a lot of fun.
0: It is a lot of fun. You and I have a long history. We've known each other for many, many years. We've lived in near each other, although we hardly saw each other when we did.
2: I think we had to go to Minnesota to see each other. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. But for those uh, few people that are listening and that may not know who you are, can you give us a little background of of your of yourself?
2: Sure. So I am the president of Aha Media Group, and we're a content marketing and content strategy consultancy. We do a lot of work with hospitals and healthcare systems. We pride ourselves on writing content that eliminates jargon and that shows empathy for the person reading. Uh, We like to say that we help people make the most important decisions of their lives. So finance, insurance, healthcare, And I wrote a book called The Digital Crown, Winning at Content on the Web. And it's really about the intersection of content strategy and content marketing.
0: We'll definitely link to the book from our show notes so people that are interested in in learning it. I have to say, when I worked at um, a hospital system in New York, I bought uh, copies for my content team after it came out. So it's a great book. So Hava... you work with a lot of hospitals and health systems. So clearly, you see that there's some challenges that organizations are, are facing today. What what are the things that you're seeing out there right now?
2: Well, I'm actually encouraged because I think that the industry forced by competition has really started to become much more sophisticated. They're focusing on their audiences For the most part, there are definitely exceptions. They are understanding the value of content and good quality content, and they're starting to recognize that they have to trade information for email addresses and contact information in order to track their marketing activities. So I think we see a lot of really positive things. What still concerns me is that, unfortunately, because of the dynamic between marketing teams and physicians, there's sometimes a push-pull between strategy and what's really important to publish. And I think that the more we educate physicians, the better we do a job as marketers of making sure that we're getting content out there that really appeals to our audiences. So that's one thing that still concerns me. And the second thing that concerns me is that SEO is changing so quickly that people are getting still caught up in aspects of it that I don't think necessarily always help them. So I'll give a story to illustrate. I once had the VP of a hospital call me and tell me that she wasn't doing well for the word heart attack. And I said to her, that's a good thing <laughs> because when somebody's having a heart attack, they're not Googling you. But if you use words like heart attack rehabilitation or heart attack diagnosis or the, you know, what's wrong with your heart or why did those things happen? That's going to, you know, get your traffic going.
0: So one of the things that organizations are really faced with is getting, and you mentioned this, right, is getting the physicians involved and focusing them on the right type of content rather than the content they think is right.
2: I first started AHA Media Group as a web writer. I was a freelance web writer and all I did was talk to doctors and I find that when they're academics so when you show them research from our field about plain language and you show them stats from analytics I remember in the beginning of my career as a as a medical writer this was in 2005 they used to argue with me about hypertension versus blood pressure so I went into key, you know Google trends or it wasn't Google trends at the time but I just showed them blood pressure is high blood pressure is going to do better because hypertension is not what people are looking for. So that's that's I think is a way to convince them. The other thing is is and I think this is always true in marketing and let's face it quite frankly we're in sales because we're selling them the idea of this kind of quality content is you have to think about what motivates them. So I remember I was once on the phone with a doctor and she basically wanted it to sound like the New England Journal of Medicine and she said to me my colleagues are going to look at this and they're you know it's going to be written too plainly. And they're going to think I don't know my stuff. And I said to her, um, so what happens? It was a pediatric hospital. What happens when a patient of yours moves to another state and you have to refer them to a pediatric specialist in that state? What do you do? So she said, well, I know everybody in my field and where they are. So I just refer. I said, do you go to the website and read the content written for the consumer? I didn't even have to say anything else she got it immediately. So I think just walking them through their concerns and understanding that you know they have they're worried about the way that their reputation is and they're worried about the way they come across to their patients and I think being understanding about that is is really important, showing them empathy and trying to get to the bottom of what their concerns are. One of my favorite techniques was, tell me how you would talk to somebody if they were sitting across from you in a room, and you were giving them bad news. That's what we want it to sound like
0: kind of bringing the bedside manner into your online content.
2: Sometimes, you know, it's it's trading with a doctor, it's saying this is for the consumer, and we're going to write it plainly for them. But If you want to blog or you want us to go straight for you about something that's sort of for a physician colleague, that's not going to sound the same way.
0: We understand you in this space and me having been in this space and working with content creators, that there are a lot of challenges to developing a a really effective content strategy. What are some of the things that you're seeing in general that are are the challenges for organizations to get started down this path?
2: Well, the first challenge is, is that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what content strategy really is. So understanding that it has three parts, editorial brand, who are we? What are we saying? How are we saying it? All that voice and tone style stuff and messaging. Then the second part of content strategy is workflow. And there's tremendous challenge around workflow because marketing departments are really undergoing massive transformation. They are being reshuffled. Systems are letting either local marketing managers, but then it needs to be centralized. So there's a lot of confusion around workflow. And I think with so many politics and organizations, it just makes it even tougher. And then the third part of content strategy is the technology, right? So how do you get the right content to the right person at the right time? And, and you recently wrote in an art, you were interviewed in an article about the stack, right? The marketing, the technology stack. And I think that that's also a huge problem. Like how do we use the CRM and do we buy a really expensive one? And then we don't, like you said, we don't utilize like three quarters of it. And so I think that there's a tremendous amount of confusion and hospital hospitals in terms of their content strategy need to be thinking about bringing in data analysts and in the success in the clients that i see that are being really successful they're attacking these issues head on and they're just trying to deal with them and they also know they're not going to solve them in three months
0: you know one thing i hear I have a lot is it it takes a lot of time to write good content what do you say to people who say that
2: The word commitment has two different definitions. It means to participate in something fully, and then it also means not to do something else. And I find a lot of times there's strategy commitment and then as soon as something happens, it like blows up and we go do the thing that we are really not supposed to be doing because we documented something totally different in a strategy. And that is really comes back to the quality content issue. Because if some doctor yells and screams about something or some vice president wants to go try this thing that he heard about at the last marketing conference he was at, the commitment to the strategy is lost. And so all quality Goes out the window because people are running around trying to figure out. Well, wait! I in January I was told I was going to do this for Q1, and now everybody's changing their tune. And so I, that's something that I think is is requires discipline. You know, discipline is knowing what you want. And I find that if you really want quality and you want to commit to quality quality content quality technology quality marketing automation you have to decide that's the thing you're doing and you can't do all the other things
0: yeah that's that's that is so true having that discipline i think that 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 can occasionally be strained when you're in a in an organization where there's a lot of political uh, motivations to be easier to kind of nimbly try to you know ca- cause less ripples so to speak
2: Content governance is becoming very hot right now in content marketing because with all this quality content that we're producing, are we sticking with our strategy? are we staying in line with our style? Is our content consistent and coherent? How do we use tools to make sure that that happens?
0: You talk a lot about you know the, sort of the science and data analysts and how that import is important to, to content development. Um, What are some of the tips that you would give organizations around that? How would they measure effective content?
2: People always ask me, how long does content marketing take to be successful? And I say it's about nine months. It's like a baby. (laughs) You know, you can't get a baby unless you wait nine months. I think the other thing is, is that for most people who are in marketing, I think they're more English language types of people. And data maybe is not as easy for them to understand or to create or to assimilate. So we need to start hiring those people that can bridge what the numbers mean and come back to us and tell us, okay, this is what we're seeing and this is what you need to do. And a lot of successful departments They don't hire people like that. They train the people they have. They send them to trainings and they send them to marketing conferences and they learn how to look at those analytics. And very often, if you purchase one of these expensive CRMs or, you know, part of your stack, there's training involved in that. And you should utilize that because we really need to know how the content is performing.
0: Looking into your crystal ball and seeing what the future may may uh, portend for content and content development, what do you see some of the trends? Where do you think where do you think we're going to be? What do you think hospitals need to keep their eye on?
2: Well, I think they need to keep their eye on the changing needs of the consumer. People are going to want more transparency from hospitals. They're going to want to know pricing. They're going to want to understand exactly what's going to happen to them. They are going to want better customer service, better, you know, just a whole experience. So, you know, you talk about the digital patient experience, and I think that that the content should really start forming around the patient experience from the time they call or the time they come to the website all the way until they come back for their checkup. The other thing that I think that we're going to need to do better is we're going to need uh, Jay bear talks about utility. We're really going to need to think about creating apps that have content within them that allow people to do the things that they need to do, you know, portals, scheduling, um, Hospitals are are going to need to prove that they're adding to people's wellness. So developing different pieces of content around certain disease states or conditions, I think they have that content already. You know, it, they're sitting on gold mines of content. They need people to come in, aggregate it for them, rewrite it for them, and then start creating Um, you know, applications that help people take better care of their health.
0: Absolutely. I think focusing in on what patients want, what they need is very helpful. And you, you you alluded to a couple of things there, which are less around the condition and disease state, but more around how do you utilize that data? What's what data can be useful for them as they navigate through this complex health system?
2: I mean, we produce all this long form content for hospitals. And I say to them, like, you know, chunk it, make it shorter, take, use it on social media. What about having texting applications? You know, the department of health and human services is constantly testing for low income, um, users do text help. Um, we once were involved in a great project for a pregnancy app where women would get a tip every single day. And then if they followed through with it, they got a coupon to babies R us or target, you know? So thinking through like, I know gaming was big and we never really jumped off on that, but thinking not necessarily about gaming, but thinking about, like I said, utility, what can we produce that affects our bottom line that also helps patients? Business objectives combined with, you know, helping users accomplish their tasks. That is the definition of content strategy. And I think that that's probably what people really need to be thinking about. And I know that you work on that all the time as well, from those touch points perspective, you know, what are each of the touch points that lead the patient to down the road to feeling like this is a trusted organization, I can get all my healthcare here.
0: Well, wow, this has been a great conversation. Lots of good stuff here. I mean, almost too much. Um, We're going to have to have you back, Ahava, for future episodes as we go deeper. I think each one of these little topics that you brought up could be the subject of a whole podcast entirely. If people were trying to get a hold of you online, um, what are the best ways for them to reach you?
2: We're at ahamediagroup.com. And I'm on Twitter at, at Ahava L. And you can always email info at ahamediagroup.com.
0: Thanks so much, Ahava. I really appreciate the conversation.
2: So do I. It was really fun. And, and I appreciate you having me on.
0: All right, Reed, We're rounding out this episode on personas. And it was a pretty good episode. We, uh, we talked about the personas, the history of them, and got into discussions on how to optimize what's a great checklist how to use personas the right way we get we had a little little counter argument whatever we're going to call it um on uh if personas are actually effective and then lastly we had a great interview with a Hava tag about uh personas and um content marketing in general so i think it was a really good episode now, Reed, a lot of people um, may not know this, but this is the first episode we're, we're recording after the Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit.
1: That's right. So no, no matter when you're hearing this, this is actually the first
0: recording we've done uh, since the conference. And it was a lot of fun at the conference. The rec- The live recording was kind of fun. We alluded to it earlier today, right? Yes. Into the how, how we had multiple people there which, which made for a very interesting conversation and, and I think that uh, the audience really responded to it and it so far is probably one of our most popular podcasts to date
1: yeah it was a lot of fun so in front of a live studio audience as they like to say in the show business yeah. we did record and it was a lot of fun and we really appreciate everybody for coming and attending and it was great because obviously you know conferences like this is the few times a year that I get to see some of these folks in person. Uh, So that's always fun, Uh, the networking's fun, but the venue is beautiful, great sessions, uh, the expo and the folks uh, exhibiting, uh, a lot of really, really
0: good organizations and companies up there. Um, so it was good. I'm already looking forward to next year. So am I. So, Reed. Now uh, it's typically when we start to when we do our recommendations. So let's uh, jump into our recommendations. Did you want to go first, or should I? Sure, I will go first. Sure. I'm not sure that answers your question, but I'll go first.
1: I am recommending a fountain pen. Most wow. people probably don't have, or if they do have, don't use fountain pens on a regular basis. You're missing out. It's an amazing experience. I love it. So I just had a birthday. Mm-hmm. My dad, who is also, if anybody knows me, knows I wear a lot of bow ties. Uh, that's where I get that from. I've never seen him actually own and or wear anything but a bow tie, but he also loves pens, And so he gave me a, uh, Parker, uh, brand fountain pen uh, for my birthday. And yeah, I can put links to it in the show notes, but it's just been a lot of fun in the last week or so to just use that, just have it at my desk. And use that as I just, you know, jot notes and, you know, make different, different, uh, uh, reminders. And so I would encourage folks to get a fountain pen, even if it's a disposable one at, at, uh, one of the office supply stores.
0: Um, it's a lot of
1: fun and, um,
0: it's just a whole different type of writing. I could just see you sitting there with your fountain pen and a bow tie mm-hmm. In, in a nice library authoring something very very important so yeah. that, that's an image that sticks with me Reed. I
1: can't read much more than 140 characters but I do <laughs> like to write with a fountain pen and Ferris Tamimi not to get us off on another track but uh, and we'll talk more about him in another podcast uh, <laughs> recommended I get a pocket watch so that would just kind of round out that whole
0: scenario yeah it sure would it sure would (laughs) well that's that's a great one we'll put a link in the show notes to that pen yes what do you got read i kind of debated this and the recommendation i'm coming to is an experiential uh recommendation and what i mean by that is when i was down there in austin you and i had sort of an afternoon where you you took me on a mini tour and a very very mini 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 tour of parts of texas i haven't seen before yeah. we went out to green texas we uh, uh that's halfway between austin and san antonio but on the way back we stopped somewhere that actually had such a meaningful um, <laughs> impact on me that I have to recommend it, and that is Bucky's. Bucky's is it a gas station? Reed? is it a what? What is it? What is the official name of it? It it was the largest gas station I have ever seen in my entire life.
1: I'd say it's um, more of
0: an experience. Yeah, a Texas-sized gas station. Let's put it that way. Yes, there you go. not only as we as we were pulling up to it. There were banks and banks. I would say almost 100 gas pumps there. And there were people out at every every one of these things. Mm-hmm. Two two banks deep. There were I mean it was all around this place. And then we pull into the actual place which is where typically gas stations is like more of a convenience store where you maybe could get a pack of gum and a Coke or whatever. This thing was the size of a Walmart where it had food and it had it had a whole uh, bulk food. Uh, you can get freshly made food. It had gas grills. Oh yeah. You can buy guns there. I mean, the this whole thing deal. is incredible. The whole deal. <laughs>
1: I'm looking on their website. That particular location is denoted as a travel center.
0: A travel center. So, there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, it was something that just basically I have never experienced that before in my life. It's just overindulgent gasoline culture. Yeah. And that that was that was what it was, and um, I actually got a Bucky's koozie to cool. Uh, it has a, they have a mascot of a beaver. It was just it was an experience. Yep. So
1: we'll uh, we'll put a link to their website in the show notes, and we may even share uh, a photo or two. So Bucky's I shot a video. Yeah, there you go. If if you're <laughs> ever if you're ever in they're only in Texas, so if you're ever in Texas. <laughs> You know, there's probably, I don't know, a couple of dozen of them around the state. And so, but they're great. They really are good. Clean bathrooms, et cetera, et cetera. So I would encourage you to stop if you happen to see
0: one. (laughs) Absolutely. You can't miss it. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, so that's my recommendation. Okay, Reed. Well, so here we are at the end. Thank you, everyone, for listening all the way through. If you made it this far and you feel it's really worthwhile and valuable, uh, we would ask you just two little favors for us just to help spread the word. The first is go out to iTunes and give us a, give us a subscription and, uh, and a star rating and even light, write a little review. That would be really great for us. We really appreciate any kind of feedback that we get from you and iTunes is a great place to provide reviews and, and, and it helps us to amplify the word. And
1: then finally, if you will, uh, make this personal recommendation, word of mouth, if you will, to another friend, colleague, boss, spouse, cousin, aunt, uncle, whoever it may be. Uh, we would certainly appreciate that. Um, it's a lot of fun for us to do, and we hope it provides value. Uh, if you have made it this far, obviously it's a value to you as well. And so that would be a, that'd be a major help. He's Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. We had a lot of fun, and we will see you next week.